produced by the iLab at WBUR Boston. The universe has good news for the lost, lonely, and heartsick. Sugar is here, the both of us, speaking straight into your ears. I'm Cheryl Strayed. I'm Steve Almond. This is Dear Sugar Radio. Oh, dear son, won't you please share some little sweet days with me? Hi, Steve. Hi, Cheryl. So this week, pretty serious topic. Yeah, this is a tough one. So when we think about people in our lives dying, I think the, the we and we see all the time in TV and movie images, for instance, you know, the sort of the worst nightmare is just receiving that phone call. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is to inform you. I have some bad news for you. And you think, oh, my God, how calamitous, you know, not even a chance to, to say anything. They're, this person's gone. Um, but actually, this week, we're going to look at what I think is a far more common scenario. And certainly, if our inbox is any indication, we get dozens of letters of people grappling with what we're calling the long goodbye, when you know that a loved one, especially a parent, which is what we'll talk about for this episode, but anybody who's terminally ill, you know, there are weeks, months, sometimes years that you know that you have to say goodbye to this person. And there are all sorts of very complicated feelings that come up when you're facing the long goodbye. Mm -hmm. And this is something... Listeners of the show will know this is close to our own hearts mm-hmm. because yeah. we both had long goodbyes of, of varying lengths. Mine was very brief. Yours was many years. Yeah. And we had to say goodbye to our mothers. Yeah. And I frankly feel lucky that I didn't get that phone call with the sudden news that my mom died. Mm. But also having that long goodbye ha- is its own form of sorrow and torture. You have to see somebody you love very much suffer. Yeah. So we're actually going to hear one letter that is from a young woman who is facing a long goodbye, and the second letter that we'll hear is the aftermath of a long goodbye. And I should mention that, you know, when we recorded this first letter, it was several months ago, and I was in the situation of the letter writer, thinking about my mom, who was still alive. And um, when we recorded the second letter, uh, sadly, um, my mom had died, so I was right there in the middle of that aftermath, grappling with some of the same feelings as the letter writer. So let's listen to that letter now, Steve. Let's do it. Dear Sugar, three years ago, my father was diagnosed with stage four cancer. When he was diagnosed, I was 25 and in graduate school out of state, 17 hours away. It was hard, but as the years have gone by, I have graduated and fallen in love in my new state. I'm in a serious relationship and have moved my younger brother out here as well. My dad says to live my life, and he would rather me stay where I am than move closer to home if it makes me happy. Some days I don't know. I have guilt, the type of guilt where I'll be sitting thinking about how I'm a terrible daughter and my father is home with my mother dying without me. He could die a year from now or ten years from now. Am I being selfish? How do children cope with this? I feel responsible for my parents, even though I know they only want the best for me. Am I a crappy daughter? I took their son away as well. 
I feel like I have abandoned them, but I don't know what to do. I don't want to move home, but I don't want them to feel like I don't want to be there. Sincerely, Daddy's Girl. Ooh, Daddy's Girl. Yeah. When I read those words, really, my, my heart hurts because, you know, I was that girl in my 20s whose mom did die of cancer. My mom died when I was 22, and she was 45. And, you know, the question for me, it wasn't, is my mom going to die in a year or 10 years? You know, I knew that my mom was going to die quickly, and she died seven weeks to the day after her diagnosis. And one of the things I want to say to you, Daddy's Girl, is that the most important thing for you to do in this period of time is just to love the people you love with abandon and truth. Because, you know, we all could die anytime. We could all die tomorrow. You know, we don't know when that will be. But I really um, do feel so lucky you know, that I had that opportunity to know my mom had that diagnosis, that I could say to her how important she was to me. It wasn't about being there every minute. It was about being present emotionally. And it sounds to me like Daddy's Girl, you know, certainly does that with her father and and her parents. Well, the other thing, just to pause a moment and say, what a beautiful guy to say to his daughter, you know, live your life. Mm -hmm. The problem is... Daddy's girl, you feel guilty anyway. And that's part of the problem when it's a long goodbye. When it's acute and sudden, okay. Be there. Be and there. You won't it's very it. simple. In, in a way, it simplifies it. Right. She says it could be 10 years and it could be a year from now. And in a way, that really puts this sort of Damocles, mostly loaded with guilt, over her head, which is perfectly understandable. And Daddy's Girl, you have to recognize the only thing you can do at this point is effectuate your love in the world as well as you can. The emphasis when death is there is always um, on death. And what I love, there's this wonderful quote from Joan Didion that I want to read because it seems to me to put the emphasis on the living, what is left of life. She writes, um, I'm not telling you to make the world better. I'm just telling you to live in it, not just to endure it, not just to suffer it, not just to pass through it, but to live in it, to look at it, to try to get the picture, to live recklessly, to take chances, to make your own work and take pride in it, to seize the moment. And if you ask me why you should bother to do that, I could tell you that the grave's a fine and private place, but none, I think, do there embrace, nor do they sing there or write or argue or see the title bore on the Amazon or touch their children. And that's what there is to do, and get it while you can, and good luck at it. Hmm. Which I think in in his own way is what the father is trying to say to you, Dad. He's, or your dad is trying to say, live your life. And the other side of that is being as involved with your dad as you can right, right now. Because and maintaining it's not that last connection. Room. You don't have to live in the same town as someone if you just because you love them dearly. And I right. do think too that, you know, with a long term cancer diagnosis, what you have are very different stages of that kind of dying. And there will come a time when it will be appropriate that she goes to him right. and maybe stays with him for, you know, months. That's a very different prospect than picking up your life and living in a town near your father just because he might in 10 years perish from cancer. Right. And then there's this line, I I took their son away as well. And this is, I think, what happens when we feel just so much guilt because somebody we love is ill. You know, she's taking on 
her brother's decision-making. He's an adult. He decided to right. move to this state, right? You, you, we take on extra baggage. In a certain way, you're, you have an opportunity now that you know there's a limited time horizon or it's much more real to you to talk with your dad about what his life consisted of and what your relationship has been mm -hmm. and what he thinks of what you're making of your life and the things that you're in, involved in trying to seize the day. After all, I think that's what parents want. Yeah. When we were reading uh, this letter and talking about having it on the show, I really, my mind went immediately to my friend Robin Rom, who's a beautiful writer. She's written two books, Mother Garden and The Mercy Papers, both that deeply grapple with her own experience with her mother who died of cancer. And we have her in the studio today. And, and we should mention... Mother Garden is a collection of stories, and Mercy Papers is a memoir that I think grapples with that moment, which is the acute phase after a long illness. Mm -hmm. And what, in a very intense, beautiful, sort of searingly honest way, what that is like at the very end. But anyway, we're so delighted, Robin, that you're here, and thank you for joining us. Hi, Robin. Thanks so much for having me. Hi, guys. So, can you tell us first your story? So my mom was diagnosed with cancer when I was 19. I had just finished, I think, my first year of college, and I was living on the East Coast, and she was in Oregon. And it was a pretty serious diagnosis. She got a whole bunch of treatment. It's been a long time now. I don't remember every single piece of the initial few years. But she went into remission for about a year and a half, and then after that was sick for about, uh, I don't know, maybe eight more years. So she was sick a total of probably nine years. All through your 20s? All through my 20s. So I was 19 when she got sick, and I was 28 when she died. And I really related to the daddy's girl letter because that question of, mm. you know, for how long am I supposed to put everything on hold to deal with this crisis? And it's at such a difficult time when you're in your 20s and you're trying to figure out, like, how you're going to be in the world and you're going to graduate school or you're having children or you're getting married or you're in relationships or you're moving or whatever. It's a very – it's a time of life that I think in this country, in our sort of current culture, is, is you're allowed to be a little selfish and to yep. set those things up for yourself. And so it's very difficult to figure out how to put all those needs aside and still be – become the person that you want to be in the midst of being pulled back into the family and pulled back into this role that you're now a daughter again, you're back in the family home dealing with family, and also you're a parent to a parent. When Before you've even parented your own kids or anything yeah. like that, right. you're forced to be a parent. And it, I found it just deeply difficult to figure all that out. I went home several times. I had gone from working full-time to graduate school, and during a summer, like before a graduate school semester, I'd gone home and my mom was pretty sick. Everybody thought she was going to die. And then she took an experimental drug and she got better for a while. And so I had to make the decision, do I stay? I don't know how long she'll be better for mm -hmm. or go and do a semester. So I went back to graduate school, started my coursework. About three weeks in, I got this phone call from my mother's friends. They'd heard, if your fingers turn blue, you've got three days to live. And they'd, my mother's oh my fingers, God. they said, were turning blue. So I threw stuff in a bag and drove from Berkeley, where I lived, to Eugene, where my mom was, and wound up withdrawing from school and staying. I had no idea how long I would be home, but it wasn't the end. It was another, you know, prolonged period of time. And it's just, you can't 
plan around those things either, which makes them so difficult. You don't know in a death like that often when it's coming and when it's going to come in three months and when it's going to come in six months or two weeks. And it makes it so impossible to make like a quote unquote good decision. That's right. And so I think that feeling of like, I'm a crappy daughter, I can't make the right decision is the only feeling available, first of all. Like, I don't think you're going to feel like, yes, now I've landed on the right thing. It's crappy to go home and sit around. It's crappy to feel far away. I remember in reading the Mercy Papers, I really admired how much you wrote about your whole range of experiences and feelings Mm -hmm. that included anger and rage and resentment. Yeah, you have this wonderful uh, line about capturing the rage that's inherent in grief and also the way you open that memoir, if I'm remembering, is about really loathing one of the nurses who's coming, you know, which is very striking because in the whole province of grief, we're just supposed to be sorrowful and guilt-stricken and so forth. And just in the limited experience I've had with my parents' illnesses, you're furious also. And that almost never gets talked about. It gets sublimated in all sorts of directions. You don't ever say, I'm really angry at you for dying, Mom. Yeah. Or I'm really angry at death and every, all of its various players, you know, that I think the hospice nurse that we had, during my mom's death, she was very, um, I don't know the one word for her, but it was as though she was on like, you know, a boulder looking down at us all. And like, she had this wisdom and we all, you know, someday would have it. And I found that to be just infuriating because, you know, here we were, we were every day dealing with this person and we had this long, rich history with each other. And I think a long, rich history with suffering. My mom had been suffering for a really long time. And so the hospice nurse came in with this idea that, you know, now we were going to put an end to suffering, but suffering was what had allowed my mom to stay alive. So it was really complicated. And so, you know, that sort of black and white, very simplistic vision was impossible for me and definitely stimulated a great deal of fury, which came out in the writing of that book, which I was writing at the time that all that stuff, a lot of those scenes were written like after the hospice nurse would leave, I would go up and write the scenes. So they were very in the moment. I love the words you've spoken to Daddy's Girl about thinking of herself that she's a crappy daughter. I think you're right. It's like almost the only reasonable way to feel and think. What words do you have of advice, I guess, for her about how Mm -hmm. to navigate through this time to come that could be months from now or years from now uh, when, you know, as the cancer progresses? Well, I don't regret going home, though, it was not an easy experience. And it did disrupt quite a lot of my life in my 20s. I mean, it disrupted my relationship. It disrupted my schooling. It disrupted work. It disrupted everything. But I remember thinking a long time from now when I'm much older and my mom is dead, what will I wish that I had done? Yeah. It became very clear that for me, and I don't think this is necessarily true for everybody, the answer was that I would have wanted to be there. But the thing I will say about that is that when I was there, especially in the last few weeks leading up to my mom's death, there was so much pressure on that time. I mean, it was just excruciating. It wasn't like it was some beautiful, wonderful moment where we shared a lot of hand-holding and looking at each other and exchanging memories. There's a lot of fighting And also, like, when we would try to bond, I remember my mom thought it would be a great idea to put together this photo album. And she would take a picture of me, you know, and she was wearing oxygen tubes and, you know, struggling to breathe. And when she she would take a picture of me and she would cry and the 
tears and the runny nose would like go down through the oxygen tube, which we would then have to like take out. And then she'd look at the picture and cry some more and be really grief stricken that she was going to die and not see like her grandchildren. And these, and so these were the moments we were yeah. spending together. They were just like painful beyond painful. And so I think that to just go into an experience knowing that it's, I don't know, I feel like it certainly wasn't fun and it wasn't necessarily beautiful, but it was really authentic and I'm grateful to have had those last messy, authentic moments with my mom. And so I just think that you have to play it by ear in a, right. in a way. Right. I mean, this is the thing that, that Daddy's Girl, you're struggling with this idea of, of I want to, when it comes down to it, I want to be there. But I don't want to put my life on hold. And I think actually that's what you managed to negotiate, Robin. And you know, the good news or bad news or just the news is at the end, you're going to be there. It's clear to me, Daddy's mm-hmm. Girl, that you're going to be there. Yeah. And so we wish you luck on your journey. And we say to you probably what your parents would say to you is you have to live your life. Yeah. And do the things you need to do to have. Yeah. You know, Robin didn't sit there and by a bedside for nine years, but you did, I'm sure, arrange your life so that you said the things you needed to say and did the things you needed to do, you know, for your mom. And she was there at the moment that it mattered most. Right. Thank you for being on the show, Robin. Thanks so much for having me. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me on point for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future, five special episodes. Listen and follow On Point wherever you get your podcasts. Ah, Steve, Hmm. the moment that it mattered most. I want to say that it it kind of hurts me. <laughs> that phrase hurts me because for many years, I was tortured by the fact that I wasn't there at, at what I for a long time believed was the moment it mattered most. Right. And that was the moment of my mom's death. Right. I, I, I later came to understand that, that that wasn't the most important moment, that actually it mattered more that I was there before she died. Yeah. But this this next letter we're going to read speaks directly to that question. That's right. Dear Sugars, four and a half years ago, my mother died at the age of 83. I loved her and miss her, but most of my feelings about her are swallowed up by my regret and blame for not spending more time with her during the three and a half weeks she spent at a nursing home before her death. Nine years before my mother's death, she suffered brain damage and memory loss, which often made her angry, violent, even obsessive. Through all of this, I was a loving and attentive daughter. I lived in New York, and she lived in Florida. And sure, I could have been there more often or stayed longer, but I was a presence with her during those years, and I'm okay with that. The mystery is those last few weeks of her life. While I was on a trip with my husband, my stepbrother went to visit my mother and stepfather. He told me that my mom was starting on hospice care. She was dying, he said. I asked if her death was imminent, and he said no. The people at the nursing home would tell me when it was close. I told myself to stay calm. I was planning to visit the very next week. There was no need to rush out there beforehand. 
I did visit that next week, and seeing my mother broke my heart. She was drugged and sluggish. She barely made eye contact. She had no appetite. She perked up when a phone was put near her ear, and she recognized my husband's voice and told him she loved him. I tried to get her to drink water, but the water dribbled out of her mouth. She wasn't eating. She couldn't drink. She couldn't communicate very much. She was beginning to receive morphine. So why didn't I stay? It was near the end of the year, and I had used up my vacation time at work. I had already planned a trip for three weeks later, right after New Year's, when I would have new vacation time. But why didn't I take a leave of absence? Why did I think that it was okay to leave my dying mother? Why did I do it? I was tortured all week, and four days after I left Florida, I hopped on a plane to return. As I got on the plane, my stepfather called to say my mother had died, and I arrived in time to say goodbye to her body. For the next two years, I became obsessed with my failure to be with her. My obsessiveness woke me up at night. It was a terrible cycle. I got medication and therapy, and to a large degree, got my life back. But although my anguish is no longer a constant, thank God, now, whenever I travel, I feel guilty again that I didn't travel more to see my mom. Whenever I hear of someone who's dying and I hear how their loved ones are there by their side, I beat myself up again for what I didn't do back then. I want to forgive myself because I know that beating myself up achieves nothing and because it greatly distresses those who love me, but I also don't feel that I ought to be forgiven. I feel like I really messed up. I don't understand why I didn't come through for my mother, and I can't forgive myself. Sugars, what am I missing? How can I allow myself relief when I don't feel that I deserve it? Signed, Can't Forgive. Ah, oh, this is so sad to me. Can't forgive. The first thing I want to say to you, you, you keep returning to this idea of you don't understand why you didn't come through, quote unquote, come through for your mother. You don't understand why you weren't with her. And I'll just tell you after reading your letter, I understand. It's because you didn't know when she was going to die. You didn't think that her death was imminent. You would have been there if you'd thought that she was going to die that day, right? We know that. I'm speaking really straight from my own experience in this, Steve. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know if I've ever told you this story. Maybe you've read it in my work. But for years, I was haunted by my own experience with this. I, my mother was dying. I knew she was dying. I had been with her in the hospital in Duluth. I decided one evening to go home uh, where my mother lived, an hour and a half away, to gather some things because I thought we were going to have, you know, a several-day vigil, essentially, by my, my mother's deathbed. Right. And what happened is I went home, spent the night, and got my little brother, and we were driving to the hospital the next morning, and she died as we were driving to the hospital. I arrived in time, just like, can't forgive, mm -hmm. to touch her dead body. Mm -hmm. And for years, I tormented myself over this. Why wasn't I there? And the answer is the same answer that I'm giving you, can't forgive, because I didn't know. I didn't know when my mom was going to die. I didn't have a crystal ball, and none of us do. Mm -hmm. We both loved our mothers. We were both really good daughters who took care of our mothers and who loved our mothers and their weakest and hardest moments. And I know you did that. 
And what I want to say to you is, you know, the, the, the place that I finally reached and forgiving myself for not being there when my mom died yeah. is I just really deeply felt the truth of that, that I'd loved my mother when it really mattered. Yeah. I have to say, I, I identify with the letter on a level that interprets it slightly differently. I think can't forgive, and I'm I'm sure just projecting. That's all we do is just walk around projecting. But my read on it from my own experience with my mom is that it was unbearable for you to see her reduced in the way that she was. You try to give her water. It dribbles out of her mouth. She can't communicate with you. <sighs> you know... That is the description of what the very end of life is. People know that they're going to die, and they, they don't eat, and they don't drink, and they shut down. And it is unbearable to watch. And it's unbearable to watch because you love that person. And can't forgive, I will just tell you very forthrightly, I did not want to see that. I was so heartbroken and wrecked by what happened to her at the end of her life. She suffered cognitive difficulties. Her body was shutting down. She had been ravaged by cancer. She knew she was going to die. She was constantly aware of it. She was heartbroken by it. Her, her dignity, her great intellect, all of her forms of solace were taken from her one by one. And it was unbearable for me to see. I went out to visit with my kids four or five times in the last year of her life. We flew across the country and we saw basically the last moments of my mom's life where she could respond. And I had the choice, the conscious decision, do I want to go out and see my mom's last two or three days of life, knowing that she was not responsive and that I would be sitting there and I might be able to hold her hand and there might even be a flicker of recognition. There probably wasn't going to be, but there might be. And I, a good and loving son, decided that I did not want to do that. I wanted to stay with my family and come out and comfort and support my dad and the rest of the family um, after my mother had passed. I think what Cheryl said, and I'm so glad and so relieved, frankly, as much as I love you, Cheryl, when I heard, you know, the moment that matters most, it was like a dagger to my heart. Because what really, what I'm trying to tell myself, and maybe I'm rationalizing, but I don't think so, what I'm trying to tell myself is, I was there for my mother as much as I could bear to be, and my presence in the final days when she, I, I have a pretty clear sense that she would not have known that I was there, mm -hmm. was more about me needing something, not her needing something. But people don't understand, can't forgive, you have to realize how deeply painful it is to see somebody you really love ravaged by a long-term illness in ways that make it unrealistic to pretend that you were going to have that hallmark moment with your mother. Right. That's not what it was going to be. Yeah, that's, I, I mean, I think that, you know, the moments that matter most are communicating love when it's possible to do so. Yes. And, and you did that, Steve. Right. I did that. And can't forgive, you did that as well. You know, the, the description of your mother in her last days it's like you're describing my own mother. And one of the things, even though my mother was only ill for, you know, like I said, seven weeks, one of the things that happened in those last days, I can't forgive, you know, you say she wasn't eating, she couldn't drink. This is what happens when people are dying. 
So you actually were with her. You were with her, can't forgive, in those in those last days that she did have some ability to communicate or have consciousness. And, you know, I think that dying is a really private thing, actually. When I was seeking my own solace, essentially, I did all this research about parents dying. And one of the things that came up over and over again was that a lot of parents, especially mothers, actually won't die with their children in the room. Right. And... I really think that, you know, you, you say, Steve, that you didn't want to be there because it was finally just so brutal and ugly that right. you that you didn't want to see that. You didn't want to remember your mother that way. Yeah. It was like that with me, too, except I think that what I was thinking is if I'm there, she won't leave me. Right. And, and you know, all of our mothers went on their own journey. Yeah. They had to let not only us go and they're dying, they had to let themselves go. Yeah. And it probably doesn't matter. Yeah. That any of us were there. It's it's a painful thing to 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 hear that because of course there's this huge counter narrative which was expressed actually in that you were there when it mattered most. You know that idea of well if we're there to to bear witness, to bear witness to what a person who you deeply loved has gone from this world, and in the case of long goodbyes, th- they are taken piece by piece. I feel this about my mother. You know, music was taken from her. Her work was taken from her. Her writing was taken from her. Life of the mind was taken from her. Bit by bit, she was being taken apart. And I think what you say, you know, the animal world, animals go off to die. That's right. They go off to die alone. And we're not trying to suggest, can't forgive, that that we don't deeply understand. Believe me, I deeply understand that this is haunting you. It's obsessing you. My counsel would be, in a very practical way, talk with somebody about this. Try to sort out all of your feelings about this, because some of them are the simple, well, I could have stayed. But I think really there was a part of you and the same part of me that said, I don't want to, to bear witness to this any longer. When when Cheryl talked about people needing to be, in a, in a sense, released from life, I can tell that my mother was trying to die. She'd been battling cancer for seven and a half years, and she was saying in her own quiet way over those last two weeks that I spent with her, enough. Enough with the surgeries, enough with the with the chemicals, the, the chemo, enough with trying to keep me fed and you know and all the rest of it this i'm in a different place now she couldn't say it directly because it was too painful for everybody but she was saying it through her actions mm-hmm. and you know the one thing that she did say several days before she passed maybe one of the last things she said i don't know this for sure but somebody who was with her said well she said your name and you know that that haunted me a little bit i thought oh she still knows that i'm in the world and maybe she's wondering where I am. And maybe if I were here, she would feel comfort. And that's a real thing that I then have to carry. But I also know that for many, many, many moments, I was in her life, loving her. And that's why she, I guess maybe my wish is that's why she, she said my name. But all I could have done if I had been there for that moment is given her a moment of happiness. And that moment of happiness would have then been taken from her. You know, that's that's the thing that I realized when it was painful for my mom to consider having to say goodbye to the people she loved. Yeah. Also, one thing I know for sure, Steve, is the best way to honor the people we love, to honor our mothers, is to become the people they raised right. us to be, right. to carry forward into our lives all of the things 
that they gave us in the form of love and compassion and beauty and generosity and sacrifice. And that's how I've ultimately forgiven myself. That's how I've stopped being haunted. Yeah. Is I realized that it didn't matter to my mother, that I was sort of circling around and around in an obsessive way about about a moment that, that was actually the least important moment. Yeah. You know, the moments that mattered the most were, was I there with my mother? Did I tell her I loved her? Was I, was I, did I give her loving, loving kindness and care when yeah. she was suffering? Yeah. I did. You did. Can't forgive did. Yeah. And then after her death, what did I do with my grief? Yeah. What did I do with the beauty that was my mother's life? Cut short, far too young. That's right. I carried her forward with me into all of these years. Right. And I said to you, you know, some time ago, I, I think I was, I'd read some beautiful sugar column that kind of devastated me in, in, the, in that beautiful way. And I just remember saying, oh, I see, I get it. Your mom is sugar. I got yeah. it. That's you made. That's your mom. That's right. So that's what can't forgive. That's what you need to do. Allow yourself to go further back in time and realize that your mom at her best and strongest wants you to have a rich life, wants you to create beauty and joy and happiness and, and to live your life. If, if death can't teach us that lesson, there's nothing that can. And my hope for can't forgive and certainly for daddy's girl is to realize like there's lots of opportunities in trying to say goodbye to a beloved parent in the case of these letters but the central thing that parents want for us is to live not to circle their graves but to make our own paths beautiful Dear Sugar Radio is produced by WBUR. We're produced and edited by Lisa Tobin. We're recording today in Portland, Oregon. Our engineer is Josh Millman of Tuckback Sound and Visual. Our theme music is by the Portland band Wonderly. Please listen and subscribe on iTunes. And if you like the show, please leave us a review there. You can write to us at dearsugarradio at gmail.com.